This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and you're listening to a very special limited series of six episodes called the Conservation Roundtable, where we take a deep dive into conservation news from around the world. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Modern Huntsman. I am the conservation editor on that publication, and you can read more on www.modernhuntsman.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am one of your hosts, Byron Pace, and I am joined by my two esteemed colleagues, um, <laughs> Jess and Ford. Give yourselves an intro, people. I'm Jess Johnson. I am the Wyoming Wildlife Federation's Government Affairs Director, sort of a glorified lobbyist that works on wildlife and hunting-issued politics, as well as a Artemis Sportswomen co-founder and a board member for 2% for Conservation. And I'm Ford Van Fossen, Content and Conservation Manager for First Light Performance Hunting Apparel, working at the intersection of the hunting industry and wildlife conservation. And I never really say what, what I am because I don't really know. I, I like I podcast <laughs> sometimes, I write some stuff, I make some films, um, take some pictures sometimes too. Um, I'm just, <laughs> I don't really know. When people ask me what I do, I was like... A lot of things not very well. That's basically basically what I do. I should just pick one. Pick one and do it really well. Um, we've got some great stories lined up today. Like As, as Ford said off-air, off some really juicy stories. Um, let's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to save... No, Jess was la last last week. Jess, let's, let's start with you because you got to love a sage-grouse. I'm you fascinated by this grouse. bird that I've never seen, although I have walked in their habitat. Oh, well, I mean, now that just means that you have to come to Wyoming because as this article states, Wyoming's home to, I think it's at least 38% uh, of the population of sage-grouse. Uh, Whoa. Just, so we're, we are home to a huge percentage. This article is a, it's called After Hunters Kill 874 Sage-Grouse Hens, the Wyoming Hunt Has Been Questioned. So a little background. Sorry, here. hold on. 874 in one year. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, check. Yep. Check. So, so heading into the controversial side of things. Uh, That's this not is, like you. <laughs> this is a sort of personally really, really fascinating to me because my colleague, Joy Bannon actually set, sits on what is called the SIGIT. It's S G I T sage grouse implementation team. Uh, the sage grouse population is down. It's like an estimated 81% from what we wanted. So it's it's tanked. It is flatlining and it is not yet on the endangered species list. Um, it has been a Herculean effort by many entities, conservation orgs, working with oil and gas, working with agriculture, working with land management, sitting at this table, uh, making decisions to keep this bird off the list. And the reason, and there's some really major political stickers that we want this bird to obviously other than like we don't want it on the endangered species list because then it's endangered. The other side of this is that if the sage grouse gets listed, I don't think the political integrity of the Endangered Species Act can uphold the controversy because sage grouse nest in almost all of the very, very popular oil and gas places in Wyoming. And so if you think about that, what happens when an animal gets listed and a habitat gets completely protected? Um, it would bring the oil and gas industry or, you know, it would bring it to its knees. And, and if you want to put the, so they would, they don't want this either then. 
no. oil and gas industry. Well, and, and are the they other fighting side of it, against it? In no, some way? no, they're with it. They have been such good partners in a lot of this because, you know, I mean, the writing on the wall is that if it comes against conservation versus oil and gas, uh, most times in America, I, I don't know that conservation is going to win outright. So it's forced everybody to the table to work together and to keep this bird off the list. It's been a great, I mean, a really, really amazing partnership. It has thus far worked, um, but but it's still not doing well. So I was actually just going to hop in and disagree with you on the working <laughs> part, Jess. Yeah, side note, but you keep going for now. <laughs> so like what I would say I, the, is that it, it would have been just listed. another seed. Yeah. Just another seed, which you can pick up on, Jess, because I'm intrigued here. Because my understanding was that if something was listed on the Endangered Species Act, it opens up a whole heap of funding to be able to protect that and bring those populations back. It does. Do we have enough funding to protect sage grouse? Do we need the Endangered Species Act uh, funding to help save the species, which is still declining? Yeah, I think it's less of a funding and more okay, of a politics. Okay. Uh, it, it's 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 a it's a politics and and resources fight. Um, I think at at its very core. And yeah, the regulatory implications would be uh, huge, gigantic um, across millions upon millions upon millions of acres in the American West that are used for grazing and mineral extraction, oil and gas, and and, and when else. you look at a state like Wyoming, whose main revenue is oil and gas uh it's it's uh you know it's it's a political quagmire and it's not fun to like continually be towing this line now part of this sigit is is to help make these management decisions and how we work together and what core area protection looks like you know there's a lot of statewide um our governor now it's gone through two administrations of governors. Uh, an executive order on sage grouse protections has been really good and, and helpful. And so I would say it's worked insofar as that they are not listed yet. And they probably would have been listed a long time ago had this not been happening. Now, is it working long term? I don't know if that's the answer because things are still declining. So there's that balance of like, we're still wrestling with problems that we don't have answers to, or at least feasible ones right now politically, which is infuriating. <laughs> but the other side of this is that at this table, like who is caring about sage grouse? You know, you have, they're, they're funny, weird birds, um, but, but who is a fanatical about sage grouse? And, and the largest population that truly cares about the sage grouse still existing is hunters because they are a really fun bird as an upland game hunt. And so they have this balance of, of hunting that builds advocates. You know, I think hearkening back to maybe it was episode one or two where we started talking about like uh, catch and release fishing and, and is it worth the price to yeah, build advocates? Yeah. Um, this is the same sort of discussion. And, and so now, as this thing is continually going down, the question is raising, is, is, is hunting having a, a population level impact? Because in the past, um, biologists have said that, that, you know, hunting is sort of, it, it, it's, they don't necessarily have an idea of what the exact impact of hunting is, um, but that it's, 
how does she say it in this? Uh, hunting is an important component of sage grouse management in Wyoming and has not been shown to have a negative impact on the population. However, cut to this year where, you know, 874 sage grouse hens are killed, um, you know, and, and again, hens get shot. There's more hens out there than, than the, the, the roosters and, and the big boomers, which are the, are the males. And, uh, because that's just sort of the ratio of sage grouse. Um, and, and they count them because hunters are required when you harvest in Wyoming, you're required to deposit a wing from your sage grouse into these barrels that are kept at the sort of entrances to all these hunting areas. There are these big tracks of public land, but at each cattle guard or sort of gate that comes into these, there's these barrels that say sage grouse wings. And so hunters are... That's going to really upset you if you want to get a taxidermied. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but they're asked to like put that in there and so they can count and get a, an approximation of, of what's, what's there. So there's this whole discussion happening about... Is hunting, is it worth to keep hunting these because we will, it will keep people at the table and fighting for the conservation of this bird? Or if we stop hunting, are we going to completely lose the advocates for this bird that are really willing to go to bat? But will the benefit outweigh sort of, it's a pros and cons list. And it's been a really interesting I'm, discussion. I mean, oh, yeah. does the quota just need to be lower? So the quotas are, I mean, they're incredibly tight. We have the most liberal quotas in the country and we have a, uh, in one part of the state, it's a two day hunting season. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. And in Jeez. another part of the state, it's a 12 day hunting season. Um, yeah. and, and, but is, but is the number limit? I mean, that's fine, but you might have a very successful day and shoot 20. You're I, only I, allowed I know to that's shoot not two. very practical, but, uh, yeah. okay. Yeah. You're only allowed so, to shoot an, two. Uh, w so here's a question then. So, yeah, okay, a lot of birds were shot this year, but was it just a particularly good year for them? Were there a lot more in the field? I, you know, I actually think uh, it's less so that the birds had a good year and more so that COVID put a lot of people outside hunting. Ah, interesting. Okay. And, and, yeah, and I don't know sense. that that's a theory of mine. Um, what I can tell you is that the population, we did not have a boom in population, so it wasn't more birds. But what we're so seeing- hunting pressure. Yeah, what we're seeing, at least for Wyoming hunting pressure this year, was a major spike in resident and non-resident hunters uh, in Wyoming and out for longer periods of time. Do you yeah. think that um, hunting organizations in different states or uh, national hunting organizations kind of missed the boat here? I mean, it seemed pretty obvious. Well, certainly early on, it was clear that this was happening because I remember discussing this ages ago with, with people, particularly in the States, about hunting pressure because of COVID, mm -hmm. that they shouldn't have been very clear with public statements telling people, go out and enjoy yourself, but please, you need to consider that there's a lot more people out for longer periods. And so maybe there isn't time to enact um, actual legislation in terms of limits, but please have you know voluntary restraint. Like we have that sometimes. If we have long, long periods of, of cold weather, we have voluntary restraints on certain species. Well, Did yeah. that happen? I think it was. We, well, yeah, we're I, Idaho is changing its system this year. So Idaho, next to Wyoming, um, does not have the same population, but it has a pile of them. I think we're we're one of the higher states in terms of population. Um. And we are this year, although this has not been officially announced to my knowledge, but I'm aware through some friends at Fish and Game that they are switching 
from a season, a sort of open season approach, which again was quite small. It was a week in one place and two days in the other with, a, I believe, a one bird um, bag. Um, but this year they are making the transition, like some states around us, to a tag system. So there will be a quota in Idaho. It will be a first come, first serve, over the counter tag system. So they will they will only sell as many tags, obviously, as uh, grouse they feel they can lose, quote unquote. Okay. I think the writing's on the wall for that. You know, I, I know that the Wyoming Game and Fish Department mentioned that like these regulations that they've set for this year. So this year's regs are, uh, I think, a season of twelve days in one area and a two day one in another. Uh, hunters can kill two grouse a day and have four in possession. Um, but they, they also state that like these regulations may be modified after harvest data has been evaluated. And, you know, because of this controversy, because of this discussion, because Idaho doing what Idaho is doing, I wonder if, you know, our, our Western states do communicate and they do talk and they do face a lot of the same politics and issues, uh, conservation wise. So sometimes, uh, you see a mirrored, regulation happen in multiple states i'm curious if it'll yeah. happen here and that i don't know looking from idaho that seems like a no-brainer y'all are killing twice as many grouse as us um mm-hmm. obviously you have quite a few more but at the same time it seems like a sort of middle of ground might be limiting that harvest a little bit more whilst not eliminating it yeah. And, and I think it's as far as from like Wyoming Wildlife Federation stance, it's it's just been that we, ha- we have to keep hunting to keep these advocates here. Yes. But we're never opposed to like looking at like tighter regulations, like more restricting like bag limits and things like that. I think it's having the option to hunt something is is the, the, well, the thing that we want to keep but having the restrictions on it is something that we're fully supportive of. And, and obviously like you know, we go based on science. So if the science does come out on this, we're, we're going to side with what it's saying. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, I suppose the one of the big takeaways is clearly what's been the measures that have been taken in terms of trying to safeguard the species uh, and try and improve and bolster populations isn't working. So something no. is going to have to change. I'm not, I'm, I'm by that, I'm not suggesting that uh, it is the hunting pressure necessarily because people need to also remember that there is always going to be uh, a natural mortality and to some extent the uh, when a, when a number of, of animals are hunted in a population through a season some of those animals will have died by natural causes anyway either through predation or old age or just bad weather or you know right. whatever it might be and so it's n- it's not a, a full you're not taking that full number out of the population either even if you're considering like we were talking about last show about the the like harvestable take of, of kangaroos mm-hmm. whereas your know, populations do expect well most populations that are doing well will be expanding every year with certainly the populations that we need to manage but clearly this is a species that is not well, ex- expanding in all ranges and i and- think the thing that we haven't looked at and this is the thing where i get mad about these conversations not looking at the whole picture is that the sage grouse is is a indicator species of the sagebrush step it is it is a fragile species that when it is not doing well it's not because the sage grouse isn't doing well it's because its habitat isn't doing well. Absolutely. And, Very and much so. we're in drought where because of climate change, where we have disturbance because of oil and gas and uh, off highway vehicles and trail work. And I mean, everything, it's not just one, it's not just oil and gas's fault. It's not just 
it's, it's, it's a myriad of things that are happening. Um, you know, we're in drought, so we're grazing cattle longer in places that are taking up nutrients. I mean, it's just, and, and it's, there's balance. I'm going to say the word balance again. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, we're not looking at, there's that thing of like, we can be fighting over like whether we're going to hunt these species or not. But if we put half that energy into conserving habitat or bringing back habitat or working on habitat restoration, we'd probably see a population boost to where we'd stop fighting on whether hunting is okay or not. Yeah. It, so talking about uh, habitat, sorry, well, carry on forward. Oh, I was just going to, I was maybe going to conclude this discussion of this critter with the fact that I struggle with hunting sage grouse personally. Mm-hmm. I've never killed one. I want to kill one because I want to see what they taste like. And because I feel like they're, again, the embodiment of that landscape. Um, but I, at the same time, as we were, you know, as we were discussing a couple episodes back, you know, our, our employees right now are spending time volunteering. We're pulling fences out at a nearby ranch, partially so sage grouse don't fly yeah. into them and get killed. And yeah. I got to think, you know, that's an incremental amount of mortality. But here we are doing the work to, to prevent those deaths. And yet here I am, on the other hand, I'm going to go out and shoot one. It's sort of, it's, it's a, a little, it's a little uh, counterintuitive. And yet at the same time, if I shoot one, do I become a st- more staunch advocate for the bird? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'll know, tell you once, once you eat them, you might hear people <laughs> say they don't like them, but they, they actually have a very sagey taste. Um, hmm. And they are, they are, they're good. Uh, you gotta I'm, cook them I'm leaning They're towards getting a tag. I am. I, I think I, I actually went out and did some let counts this year and, and watched sort of the whole ceremony. And I think I want to shoot. I want to. I so desperately want to photograph and film that. It's, I should send you some so videos, incredible. Byron. It's pretty cool. And and we have what time of year? Uh, nah, they start well, early May or ago. early April, yeah. and yeah. they'll go through early okay. April into maybe first part of May, but mostly Next early year, April. Though. Yeah. Next year. And and well, the last about- thing, the, just one last thing on that one is that that like hunters talking about managing yourselves, you know, I like to hunt them, but I only shoot one or two a year, and that's it. And and while I can shoot two a day, I would. It's just it's that thing of like you know finding finding where your boundaries are and, and then finding the way to give back. So so I would say that the indiscriminate just filling your bag limit every day is maybe a question we also have to be asking hunters. Um, agree with you. I had the same kind of transition in my mindset in rivers where you used to, uh, it's much rarer now, a lot of rivers in the UK, or particularly in Scotland, you can't actually kill salmon in. But even when you could, and there were limits, weekly and daily limits, um, I, I found myself just not wanting to enjoy taking one or two salmon for the season. And then not fishing for them anymore because not wanting to put them through the stress of releasing them, knowing that I wasn't going to take one and the two was enough for me. And that was just a personal kind of self-restraint. Yeah. And it didn't, you know, it, it, it maintained my sort of deep-seated passion for the species, um, but I don't think was, you know, impacting them in a negative way, not by comparison to the other threats that they face. Uh, but talking about uh, restoration of landscapes and species and wildlife and biodiversity you've got a a quirky story forward 
Basically, do we need more nuclear explosions? Is that what you're going to tell us? Uh, you know, sort of, maybe, kind of. The uh, And this, I cheated again, honestly, because I believe I first became aware of this sort of dynamic in one of the recent gorgeous sweeping uh, nature documentaries on Netflix. Yeah, the, Our Planet, I think it was. Yeah, David Attenborough. yeah. one of the David Attenboroughs. Um, which, by the way, I just saw his, the recent doc, his sort of statement doc. Have y'all seen that? Mm-hmm. The no. Or I'm not sure that I have, actually. No. I mean, it, it's it's just amazing that he is 93 and is just this He's 95 now. Well, Ooh. sorry, when he, I guess when they filmed yeah. this, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's just this, I mean, just sharp as a tack, eloquent You know, I speaker. met him. I met him two years ago. Really? Yeah, I filmed with him uh, oh. in London. And he was... <laughs> <laughs> the utmost wow. gentleman you know he's one of the most recognizable and famous people on the planet unquestionably like mm-hmm. few people would not know who he is if you put them in front of him and yet he was incredibly humble mm. and like unassuming i picked him up from his house in london oh, and we wow. went and we recorded <laughs> the stuff we worked on a script together like I didn't ex- expect that he would care what my opinion was on anything because really I didn't think it really mattered when yeah. I was sitting beside so David Attenborough. But yeah, like he wanted to have a discussion mm-hmm. and we put the script together and he sat down and he, you know, he was giving his time. It was for, it was actually for a salmon project for International Year of the Salmon. And he gave up his time, I imagine his schedule's insanely busy, to go and take half a day out to go and record some narration and sit in front of a camera for us. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. But anyway, sorry, I, wow. I derailed your your no, uh, what you're about to tell us. I self derailed. That's awesome. I, <laughs> I, that's awesome. Um, anyhow, Chernobyl, uh, <laughs> obviously uh, a disaster, uh, loss of life, uh, crazy. Great TV series. Yes, great TV series. Uh, crazy pollution. Uh, by some estimates, the area will not be inhabitable. For 26,000 years, I think this article said. It seemed like that was a little bit of a guess, but pretty gnarly. Uh, But obviously the area was vacated and has been, and it it is sort of being rewilded by not only sort of your vines creeping in buildings and bunny rabbits, but megafauna, right? Uh, Bison, wolves, moose, or elk, I guess we call them in this circumstance. Uh, and even this horse that I'm not familiar with, um, I don't want to say it, Byron, because I'm going to mispronounce it. Is oh. that it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Is it uh, in the article? Yeah. yeah, uh, it is. Yes, it is. I should, which I have open. So, okay, I, I need to, I'll open it up and see. I probably won't even know. It'll be Russian, is it? Uh, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. It's, it's I, I mean, in the Ukraine, but I would assume it's a Russian word, Patrolsky. Oh, I, I can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, it's a Mongolian. Some... It's it's what the Mongolian horses are. Uh, you know, yeah. it's the right. ones with like the roached horse, mane right. and like the. You the would know, Jess. You're a horse person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I don't know if I could pronounce it. It looks like Przewalski is close. It does look like Przewalski, yeah. But really, just you know, fascinating in that we sort of give nature this these decades. Um, and here it comes right down the former boulevard of a city, right? Yeah. Uh, and not in an insignificant way. It's pretty amazing. Perseverance. And, yeah, and also, I think, kind of haunting. I have, 
I have the pronunciation. You know, it's Przewalski. Przewalski. I will remember that. Not at go. all. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, I, I think it once optimistic and also perhaps foreboding, right? As to uh, is this a window to what post human Earth looks like, right? Because there will so, be a post human Earth. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not really in our curious. lifetime. I wouldn't think, but. So do they talk about in this article? (laughs) Do they talk in this article at all about like the health of these animals? Because like the thing is, is that humans can't inhabit there. So how are these animals? Are they like? I mean, are we seeing like you know seven headed? A lot of them do have defects. Or like yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of their lifespans are a lot shorter. And there, there has been, and I, I don't know this from reading the article, but um, I actually recorded a podcast um, with somebody not that long ago, and he'd been there, um, and he was looking for these. It was, I think, it was, I don't think it was for Discovery Channel, but it was that kind of show where they were looking for radioactive killer wolves or something, which they knew nice. didn't really exist, but that nice. was the premise behind going there. That's awesome. And yeah, they, they found stuff did have a lot of genetic mutations because of the radiation, but they were still able to breed and they were still able to replenish themselves at a fast enough rate that these populations, just as you're saying, um, Ford, are increasing. And wildlife is just coming back into this area that has been vacated by people. So although they are facing all of the challenges of very high levels of radiation, which is causing genetic problems for them, they're still doing better than if humans had been there. They're sort of bettered (laughs) off, all nuked out. Which is really, really should be making us scratch our heads about it. Yeah. It should a little bit, yeah. We'll take take the radiation poisoning, thank you. (laughs) It's cool. Yeah, yeah. But it's pretty wild. I mean, I I do wonder, will there, you know, when does the Chernobyl tag become available here in the future? (laughs) You know that people have moved back there. I mean, at least. Yeah. There's There's a lot of people living in the exclusion zone now. Yeah, this article referenced, I think, maybe 200 squatters that have sort of a specific name even. Um, Yeah, they basically just were people who were very poor and had nowhere else to live. And, you know, there's all these houses and buildings there and nothing functions properly. There's no sort of functioning society. Um, Mm. I doubt there's running water or even electricity or anything like that, but. Uh, yeah, there's quite a few people living there now. 187 the people known as this. Oh, I don't want. I'm, there's another pronunciation problem. But the translation <laughs> is <laughs> the translation is self settlers. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I, I think I'm going to do a deeper dive into this sort of this Chernobyl thing after looking at this article. This is this is going to send me down a wormhole. So this well, is I'm just, interesting. I, I, and this is something to perhaps, perhaps provoke Byron too, but I'm always <laughs> heartened and surprised by the megafauna that kind of exists in these corners of continental Europe, you know? Yeah, we have a lot. And, you know, yeah. you think about, you just think about the European moose. Yeah. I mean, that thing is like a dinosaur. <laughs> I know that you guys, you know, you've got your big ungulates in North America and your, your big moose and your huge elk. 
and we're not used to seeing stuff on a common basis. You know, we don't have anything as big as that here in in the UK. I mean, we used to have the Irish elk, which itself was the most incredible animal, and we still they get dug up in peat bogs on a fairly frequent basis. Oh yeah, I've shot them in Big Buck Hunter. <laughs> I'm familiar with the Irish elk. <laughs> But, you know, the European moose is is a huge animal. And then we have the European bear as well. Yeah, the black bear um, really, or the brown bear is really... The brown bear, yeah. It's a stunning. big one, yeah. Exactly, European brown bear. Um, it's There's a lot of, you know, and like we were talking about a few shows ago, the bison or European uh, woods bison yeah. is also there. And our, our, our lynx and other small small cats and a lot of wolves we've got a lot yeah. of a lot of big packs of wolves particularly up in russia oh, it's just, i mean so that terrorize peoples and villages actually sometimes yeah yeah it's i i find it similarly heart i guess it's both heartening in that you know a place that's been occupied by western civilization for so long does have these pockets of wild on the flip side yeah. I think about the eastern United States where we've done a damn good job killing off almost all of our fauna, megafauna, yeah. rapidly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and places are reintroducing some of that, but certainly not rapidly. I mean, there's something I to be that- said about the inhospitable environments, whether it's human-caused Chernobyl or just very, very rural and rough uh, landscape and, and weather patterns to live in that does build larger animals because they have the space and the alone time essentially to get big. <laughs> yeah, I guess the big takeaway from this is uh, provide the space and the means for wildlife to come back and it will come back. I think uh, that brings to mind the quote, life will find a way from my perhaps favorite film, Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of animals overtaking places of humanity. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll transition from Jurassic Park to (laughs) Alien Invaders, which is my story, (laughs) Um, which is in, uh, it's a really great uh, online publication called The Conversation. If you don't read it, you should. Um, basically, to get published on there, you have to have, a, I think, at least an MSc level of education. Otherwise, mm. you can't be published on there. So this was a story. This is a story based on a paper that was originally published in Nature, where the authors were putting a value on the impact of invasive species. Now, it, it's long been known that invasive species are one of the big, the, the, one of the top five reasons for biodiversity loss around the world. Um, but that hasn't seemed to really sort of, although there's been uh, some great successes to try and reverse some of these impacts. In fact, it is one of the few targets that were set um, when the HE targets were were set that we have actually made inroads to. I think for our biodiversity targets from the Convention for Biological Diversity, I think they were set in, well, the targets were supposed to be met by 2020. I think they were originally set in 2010. And we missed basically every single target of 20. Mm. Um, But um, reducing the impact of invasive species was one that we did actually make some positive inroads in. And I think a lot of that was due to our ability to um, remove alien species from islands, actually, more than anything else, because if it's on connected mainland, it's it's almost impossible to do. You know, even on a place like New Zealand, where they've been trying by poisoning their entire country for decades, mm-hmm. they haven't even really been very successful. But the, anyway, this paper was trying to put a value on it to really, really focus people's minds as to 
stopping this problem becoming any more because the cost to prevent it is far smaller than the cost to fix the issue. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that from 1970, which was their kind of baseline to today, the cost of of invasive species to loss of other species and the impact on on humans in the landscape from the loss as a result of having these species is 1.7 trillion sorry 1.3 trillion US dollars which is a lot of money when you when you start to really focus like well what else can you do with that and they were saying that to prevent this it's like a tenth of the cost um and the impacts are are vast they're you know, obviously extinctions of native species by overcompetition, but a lot of human health-related stuff, even things like um, species of mosquitoes that wouldn't normally be found in North America that are coming from the South, which are have the ability to carry viruses that we wouldn't normally have to contend with. You know, that's mm-hmm. a human health problem. Oh, yeah. Um, some of that might come with climate change. I mean, that's another aspect of this is some of the the sort of march of invasive species is being facilitated not necessarily by the transportation and introduction by humans, but by the impacts of climate change in that they can just exist in places that they wouldn't have been able to exist in before. Mm -hmm. Um, There's two quite um, good examples of this. In fact, the one example, this is I wasn't actually going to bring this up, but it's going to be in the next volume of Modern Huntsman, is Burmese pythons in the Everglades and how these oh, yeah. are just decimating Oof, yeah. the native populations of animals there because they, you know, they live a long time, nothing eats them, and they pretty much eat everything. <laughs> and they get hundred, dense. Yeah. There's like a lot of them per a square lot. mile, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of people trying now to get them out of the Everglades by hunting them, by trapping them. And and trying to eradicate them, I, I don't I don't know enough about it to really make comment. But I guess I'm going to find more once the the article gets submitted. Is this but, a eat, eat more Burmese python kind of? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm just wondering. <laughs> I'm just python, wondering whether delicious. it is indeed possible. It seems like an impossible task because the Everglades is so vast to be able to remove them. But maybe they can at least reduce the burden. That they place on native populations. You know, but we have there's, a, there's other... we have a, the the issue that we have is not necessarily uh, animal related, although it can be with the zebra mussels and issues with the aquatic invasive species. But one thing that I know Wyoming's putting a ton of money for right now is the zebra mussel stuff because they were uh, these are the mussels that clog waterways and they take over freshwater mussels. They you know just it's they're so incredibly harmful if they are. Uh, not where they're supposed to be in Wyoming. Oh, to I've date. seen footage of this, and you just see them oh, like yeah. just jamming up. They just um, so it stops so water flow, and yeah, and this is one where it's a human issue because it stops water flow and water plants. It's expensive, you know. It, it hits agriculture because it can clog up irrigation stuff. It hits you know recreationists because they can clog boat motors and everything like that. And then obviously the conservation side of it with with wildlife and the uh, sort of native species that it that it replaces and just completely changes, you know, the waterways. Um, but the thing, you know, that we've experienced, and this is really relevant for now, is that to date, Wyoming does not have zebra mussels. 
But mm, okay. early this year, zebra mussels were discovered in these like aquarium moss balls that were being the sold. damn moss balls. <laughs> the damn moss balls being sold for fish aquariums, and yep. you know, a- and they made it into the state, and there's been this huge response to get people to dispose of these moss balls. You know, you're supposed to boil your water, bleach and boil them, freeze bleach them. and boil them, like and and put them in a place that they cannot get into a water table. I mean, our game and fish department is even offering like like fiscal incentives to turn these moss balls in. Wow. Um, because once they're here, you don't get rid of them. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's not a sense of getting rid of them. It's how do you contain it? Um, and it's just been a real like eye opener because it's, you know, a lot of other states are already dealing with this in their waterways. They're just having to contain it. I think the Great Lakes is one of the oh, yeah. most heartbreaking yeah. <laughs> uh, stories around it. Um, but all you have to do is it, like Google, you know, zebra mussel uh impacts of zebra mussels and it's the 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 photos speak for themselves it's scary um it's a big problem and i i wrote a story in modern huntsman online uh, a little while ago that was talking about worms in the arctic and that had been brought there originally for just basically trying to make the land more fertile for farming as we were colonizing the world which you think oh i mean what harm can that do but what it did was it did make the land more fertile and it broke the soils down more in an environment that was never really designed for that. And so it improved the, the nutrients and other species of plants and flora started to grow there and it's changing the landscape. Um, I mean, you can talk about um, funguses and viruses that get brought on fishing nets and waders and canoes and you know, transported between countries, which can completely wipe out entire fish populations. It's just something that we really, really need to be vigilant about and really think about. Oh yeah. Uh, and also, I think we're, I think we're, I hope that we've kind of moved beyond this kind of fanciful approach of, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have this species here just because I like it? Like the the one of the stories I pulled up. What is that? All while of I was New reading Zealand. This, <laughs> like all of New Zealand, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> was about um, beavers in South America, mm-hmm. which were introduced there. So this was a story uh, based in Chile, and they were introduced there seventy-five years ago. Oh no, sorry, this uh, Patagonia actually is where the story was. Um, seventy-five years ago from Canada, and it's just decimated their landscape because oh, yeah. it was a landscape that wasn't designed to have beavers in it. It is, and mild. they reckon that the. Um, the cost, the socioeconomic impact of what they call a rodent invasion um, has been estimated at $73 million. Uh, and they reckon that uh, if nothing is done in the next 20 years, it's going to cost $260 million just to correct the impact that these beavers are having because they've now blocked up 90% of all... This is the, So this is now um, them talking about Chile... Uh, 90% of all rivers and streams in the country have been blocked or have wow. some sort of blockage from beavers in a place that they, they never belonged in the first place, which is not only redirecting and restricting water flows, but it's other things. When we, when we look at things like global climate change, and this was actually connected to the Arctic article about the worms, is that it's breaking down these soils and these higher levels of water 
causing greater uh, greater amounts of decomposition, mm -hmm. which is putting more carbon into the atmosphere. Funny and particularly how methane, are which which is yeah, ev yeah, everything everything is connected. So we have to be so careful about that. But I, I think we're we're definitely beyond just saying, oh, that would. I mean, may, maybe apart from Texas. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but in most of the rest of the world, no one's really introducing species that didn't that don't belong there. I don't think we're really doing that anymore. Thankfully, I'm just trying Luckily to imagine not. the first beaver that like walked out of his little crate from Canada. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, the initial oh, hey. beaver impression, like, well, where am I? <laughs> well, it's it's ironic because it's ironic on several levels, but we almost killed all the damn beavers in North America. It's sort of like, do we just need to get time time machine and get some mountain man beaver trappers and send them down? Well, to down yeah, it's, it's funny you should say that, Ford, because I was in the article they were saying that they've tried really hard and it's just not not possible to uh, keep on top of the beaver population because they've been trying to wipe them out. And I was thinking, well, hold on a second. I'm pretty sure there was a group of people that were pretty damn successful yeah, almost Jeremiah wiping out the Johnson beaver. Jeremiah would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've got the wrong people trying to do it, basically. Yeah, yeah. they've got to yeah. change, change their tactics and hire some, some rural, like, Rural angry ranchers right now probably would be very I reckon, effective. I yeah. reckon, Jess, there's probably some Montana families out there, and I say this with love. That could probably do it. They should. There's probably half a dozen Montana families with that in their history. They just ship them down there. Probably only take them twelve months. They'll get the job done. Yeah, just send Seth Morris and Steve Rinella down there. <laughs> and on that note, and on that note, we will bring this episode to a close. It's been fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Looking forward to next one. <laughs> <laughs>